Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hi everyone, just before we get this next history hack out and going, just a quick reminder that there are lots of ways you can support the pod. Remember, just by liking, subscribing, and sharing it with your friends, that is invaluable as it gets the word out and our witterings can go far and wide. But if you're able to support us financially, that would be incredible because it helps us keep doing what we're doing. In the description to this episode, there are links to Patreon, where you can support the podcast regularly, and Ko-Fi, where you can tip us for an episode that you like. But we've also got some merch. So if you head to shop.historyhackpod.com, You'll be able to see some incredible bits of merchandise featuring the incredible designs that Steve Smith does for every episode. We've got some totes on there, some mugs, and we've got more stuff coming all the time. So please do check that out. And if you are able to support us financially, that is incredible. Thank you so much. But even if it's just liking, sharing, and telling everyone we're incredible, that helps us too. So without further ado... Hello and welcome to History Hacks, dedicated Second World War air power podcast, head chopping with me, Matt Bone. Today I've got my first returning guest. We've got John Bernstein back with us, who you may remember from our chat about P-47s a little while ago. But today we're going to be having a very different conversation because we're going to discuss a very personal story about one Wellington, her Canadian crew, a replacement infantry officer waiting to deploy and a crash outside Exeter that brought them all together. So, John, thank you so much for coming back. How have you been, mate? Not too bad. A little under the weather lately, but otherwise doing doing pretty good. And he's just picked up a beautiful little puppy. <laughs> yes, she just wandered in. <laughs> Gotta pick her up in order to keep her quiet. <laughs> but yeah, I'm 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 very dog broody at the moment, so that's that's not helped me at all, mate. Thanks for that. <laughs> She's there. <laughs> We've been chatting about loads of things recently, but when you told me this story, it, it basically needed to be a podcast. So we're going to be talking about your grandfather, aren't we? Yes, yes, we are. And sort of the origins of my interest in World War II, my, my granddad was my best friend throughout the first 32 years of my life. And, uh, you know, this started with just sort of the, as, as something I did to honor him after he died and expanded uh, far more than I ever expected. I can see that. And I, I know a little bit about this and I'm really looking forward to hear the rest of it, but let's start with his footlocker. So why is that an important part of our story? And to spoil this a bit, why do you have a chunk of Wellington bomber in Virginia? Well, um, 
My grandfather, like you said, was, was an infantry officer in uh, the 83rd Infantry Division. He came into the division right at the end of the Normandy campaign and fought as a platoon leader and then later Company XO through the end of the war. Let's see, when, when I was three years old, three or four, somewhere around there, he pulled out his footlocker for the first time, which had all of his uniforms and the stuff that he brought back and photos and everything. And it was my treasure chest as a kid growing up, whether it was wearing his, his overseas caps or in eighth grade, I actually started to fit into his uniform. So I, you know, I wore it to school one day. I used to carry his musette bag as my book bag. I mean, it was, it was just what, what sort of molded me that and just the fact that that he and I spent so much time together throughout my life when I commissioned I was pinned with his second lieutenant's bars and he and my grandmother were there at my commissioning and everything that was uh, brilliant it was it was wonderful they and my parents and and my my now wife came out uh to Fort Lewis Washington from New York and uh, were there for my commissioning and it was just uh, it was amazing to to have him there and be pinned with his lieutenant's bars. So it was, you know, we lost him about, about a year later, but still that was sort of one of the defining moments of my life. And okay. We, we, we got to ask this as, as a straight infantry man, what did he think about you flying Apaches? It was actually funny. He told me, if you're going into the army, you can do anything but be an infantryman. <laughs> he said, you absolutely will not be an infantryman or you will have to deal with me. So yeah, he was pretty much dead set against it. He said, you want to be a pilot? Great. We lo- I love pilots. Pilots were great. He talked a lot about P-47s and P-38s, providing close air support for, for him. So he was all about that. And when, when he learned that that's what I wanted to do, he was excellent. Go for it. So, so yeah, he was definitely dead set against the infantry. <laughs> <laughs> so in his footlocker, he has had you now have a piece of this aircraft so let's start delving into this story a little bit there it is yeah that's that's a hef- that's a hefty bit of metal it's about a six inch piece of sheet metal now with the construction of the wellington i've been trying to figure out exactly where this came from because you've got that that geodetic frame but this is a piece of sheet aluminum so i figured it's probably either from a leading edge or possibly a turret fairing or something like that. Uh, But it's not part of the main structure of the aircraft. And it's a crumpled piece of metal. And on it is written, a fragment of Wellington bomber crashed 5 July, 1944, Honiton, England. And uh, what I've been trying to figure out since I started looking into this is what an infantry officer in England was doing at the crash site. And it's led me on, on quite an interesting journey. It's not done yet uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, I've certainly learned a lot about the crash and the crew. And uh, I still haven't figured out why he, why he was there, other than the fact that I know he was in Exeter as a replacement waiting to go across the channel to link up with the unit that he was going to fight with. So let's, let's ask about this, this bomber. So it's a Wellington 10. What do we know about her before she... She joined the unit that we're going to be talking about. So she was serial number HF-485, and she was uh, posted to uh, 466 Squadron prior to that. I know one of the crews that she flew with, because Mr. Tony Cairns was the son of the tail gunner on HF-485 on her uh, her combat tour. And uh, he actually sent me a number of photos of the airplane. Uh, She did carry some nose art. She was coded N for Nancy, and so there was a, a... 
a female figure, just sort of a, a head and shoulders painted on the, the nose of the airplane. Uh, and she was called Nancy. I know she flew, it was 30 some odd combat missions with 466. And I have to double check, but I had gone through and was able to, to place her on at least 30 some odd. And after that, she was posted to uh, number 82 operational training unit in, I think, November of 43. And then she was with 8-2 until June of 44 when she was transferred to 8-6 operational training unit, which had just stood up. Now, it's interesting because the crash report says she was part of 8-2, and another document that I have says she was uh, posted to 8-6. So I'm, I'm sure there's some transition uh, time in there, considering it was only, you know, what, two and a half weeks before that they, they stood up 8-6 OTU. So it's uh, just sort of interesting to, to, to see that. And I've written to, to, to Q to, to see if they can scan the, both the unit's ORBs for me because they're not digitized yet. But I'm waiting on those right now. It's, it's always the ones you want. That are not a... <laughs> but the aircraft bounced around those OTOs. Like they're, you know, it was almost like, who, who, who needs what, don't they? So they get passed around a huge amount. So let's talk about the crew because you knew me. And mentioning a Canadian crew, I, I jump, I jump, I jump at, jump at the chance. So where, where were these guys from? They're clearly, clearly still in training, but what do we know? You've mentioned, you've mentioned the gunner, but how, how about the rest? It's, it's interesting. These, the, the crew from the operational training unit were actually all experienced guys. They had been flying coastal patrols or a number of them had been flying coastal patrols in Canada off either in the Pacific or out of Newfoundland for the, a solid year before. Now, the pilot was Frank Lauren Burston. He was 30 years old, and he was, a, he was an experienced Hudson pilot. The navigator was his brother, Glenn Richard Burston. Both, both of them were from London, Ontario, as was the bombardier, Richard Vernon Dupe. So they were, I guess, the forward half. And then Warren Officer Douglas Gordon Bush, DFC, was the radio operator. And uh, he had previously been with uh, number 11 squadron. Uh, and he was originally out of, forgive me if I, if I pronounce this wrong, but I guess Kelowna, BC. Yep. That's it. Okay. And, uh, and it then. So happens to be a Tempest two taking shape in Kelowna, BC as well. Excellent. Excellent. As, 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 as an aside, but there we go. <laughs> <laughs> what, what were typhoons in there somehow too. So, and then we've got the uh, two gunners, Sergeant Owen Miller out of Toronto and Sergeant Neil Scott Herder out of St. John, New Brunswick. And I, I wasn't able to find any previous experience for the two sergeants, but everybody else um, had been either with uh, 145 or, or 11 Squadron. And Bush actually earned his DFC. I've got the citation here. Uh, if I can just find it. Yeah, here we go. So... Award effective 5 May 44, as per Canada Gazette of that date. Uh, warrant officer, uh, as a wireless operator air gunner, has been employed continuously for a long period on anti-submarine operations, during which time he has displayed exceptional keenness and ability uh, in the performance of his duties. He has participated in four attacks on enemy submarines, three of which he's been credited with as the one who made the first sighting. So wow. lots of uh, anti-submarine work there. And... I'm not sure if he flew with the Burston brothers. Actually, I don't think he did because I think they were with 145 Squadron at that point. So they all sort of came together in England, but, but they were all flying these similar profile missions in, in 
pretty much the year leading up to to them getting to, to England. That's fascinating, especially the, the, the two brothers on board. So you've got a highly experienced crew still learning e- each other out by this this sort of stage, which I suppose is not something we tend to tend to click a lot. You sort of think the o- OTUs are the the boys straight out of school getting right. getting used to it. You're not always thinking that this is actually a, a new crew, yet a highly experienced crew that may have been doing different profiles beforehand. Exactly. Yeah, I would think that, that with all their experience, they probably gelled pretty quickly. Now, I, need, I can't find the document, but there, there's, I, I found something along my search that said that they were actually on their last training mission. And it was an operational sortie over the continent, but it was their last mission as a training crew before being posted to an operational unit. So that sort of makes it you know, doubly tragic. They, here they were, they were pretty much all ready to go, and uh, you know, the, the worst happens. So let's talk about this. We have an experienced crew flying a very interesting op. So what were they doing on 5 July? They were flying a nickel mission, basically a leaflet drop over the uh, the continent where they were dropping propaganda leaflets trying to get the Germans to surrender. They flew out over Normandy, turned west. I'm not sure exactly where the target was because I haven't found a mission report yet. Hopefully that'll be in the the ORB. But they made their drop, and then they turned out over the Channel Islands. And uh, waiting for them were six radar-guided 8.8-centimeter Flak 36s and uh, radar-guided searchlights as well. Now, there are over 175 anti-aircraft guns on Guernsey, apparently, mostly under the control of Flak Regiment 292. So as they turned out over the, the Channel Islands, they took fire and uh, their right engine was hit. And we know this because the, the crash report you know, says that, that the right engine was feathered, uh, there were signs of fire. So what I've been able to, to piece together is as they, they passed over Guernsey and were hit, right engine caught on fire. And so obviously fabric-covered airplane fire is not a good thing. And uh, they weren't able to, to control it. They weren't able to get the fire out. And checking at and checking the maps and everything, and Google Earth is a phenomenal tool. So I basically looked at where they were and where they crashed. And what I was able to figure out is Glenn Burston was a phenomenal navigator. He shot an approach that was just dead on. I mean, he was it was absolutely perfect. He got them within three miles of the end of the runway at Exeter from wow. from Guernsey. And Unfortunately, what looks like happened, the fire either burned through the control cables in the wing or it just burned off enough flying surface that, that they weren't able to maintain flight anymore. And they hit the, the farmhouse at Livermore Farm and the airplane exploded. And, and that was it, unfortunately. But he got them all the way back, or almost all the way back. I mean, just amazing. And th- three miles is nothing it, yeah. af- after that. They must, they must have almost been breathing normally by that point. I mean, runway in sight and everything. So, yeah, I mean, it's just awful. So here we are. We've got, unfortunately, something that's reasonably frequent, a, a, a bomber crash landing in, in southern England. Mm-hmm. And here's your grandfather. 
waiting for something very you've already said you're not exactly sure what he was doing in Exeter other than waiting but he's he's there and we believe he gets involved in the direct aftermath doesn't he right I mean what logically I sort of figured out was okay they probably pulled a detail from the the replacement camp at Exeter and said hey we need help fighting the fire or something along those lines and something brought him to that location so I mean it could have been, hey, just souvenir hunting. Oh, there's a, there was an airplane crash and we picked this up and bring it home. But knowing my grandfather, he's the kind of guy who, who got into things to help out. I mean, he would, we, we always used to joke around that my parents would, my, my grandparents would help anybody and, and get to know anybody wherever they traveled uh, around the world. They were always meeting people and getting to know people and, and trying to help out. So knowing my granddad, he was there to help out. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to ask you a few more questions about him in a minute, but let's, sure. you've, you've managed to, to track down some of the family members of the crew. You yeah. mentioned the, the tail gunners family before what's come out of those conversations about the, the men on the plane and the sort of what you found out about that last stop. Well, one of the, the really interesting conversations I had was, was with Mr. Byron Lambert and his father flew with the Burstons and he happened to be posted to a different squadron when they all went out, but they were all together in 145. And he said that, that Frank Burston was a hell of a pilot and, and knew his airplane and was a really excellent aviator. So knowing that, and knowing that Glenn was a, an excellent navigator, both through through Mr. Lambert and from just what I've been able to piece together, so it was really just just it helped reinforce how capable these men were. They obviously were not novices; they were very experienced aviators, and so it was really kind of cool hearing that uh, from him. Also spoke to Diane Burston, who is who was Glenn's daughter. And she and I just talked sort of about what I had found and she shared a couple of things that, you know, that, that she had found over the years and stuff. And that was really neat just talking to her. And, and she was very appreciative that, that somebody, of course, was remembering her, her father and her uncle. So that was, that was really an emotional phone call. And that was, it was a number of years ago now, but, but still it was really just, just very, very cool to hear. And then I also spoke to Mr. Martin Pemberton, who was uh, Vernon Dupes' nephew, and uh, just sort of getting to, he pieced together little things you know, about the crash too. So we were able to share some information. But it was, it's amazing how when you get into, into doing the research, how many other people are involved and how many other people have questions and, and are sort of looking into, into this. And it was, uh, it's, it's really neat to, to be able to pull all that together into a story. And, and it's, you know, quite a compelling story. So it is, yeah. Well, I guess the question I'm, I'm, I'm trying to ask really is as this has started to come together, what have you learned about these guys that it, it seems that there's a little bit of color coming in each time you, you, you piece a little bit more. So what <laughs> sticks in your heart about these men? Well, first of all, that the Burstons and Vernon Dupe were a little older I mean, Duke was the oldest at 31. Frank was 30 and Glenn was, was 28. Um, the other three were 21 and, and the, the two sergeants gunners were, uh, were both 20 years old. But, you know, these men had, had established lives before the war and, you know, were, you know, college graduates. I've got um, a book of remembrance from, from London, Ontario as a, 
you know, piece on uh, each of the three three boys you can see in mm-hmm. there. Yeah. But just uh, one of the things we sort of take for granted in, in researching airplanes and stuff, or at least, you know, I, I did for years, was I'm focused on... In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. The airplanes and and the missions flown and everything. And this has really brought in such a human element. And this was, I first started looking into this in 2006. And this was probably the first thing that really started me on the human stories rather than just the missions. And it really, it it had such an impact on me as a historian that it it, it altered my view on, on how to, to do history. And that's really been, been pretty amazing. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. I, I know that feeling. You've, you find a story that clicks, and then you usually that story has an abrupt ending. And then yes. you realize that person was 21, 22, and you're mm-hmm. sitting there as a you know, 35, 40, 40 year old gentleman, as, as, <clears throat> as we are. Yep. And then, then there's another one, another one, and we, yeah, we, we, we joke about planes and typhoons and, and jokes quite a bit. But I think for for both of us, that focus is the other way around. It's 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 the man in the cockpit that's far more interesting than than the aircraft. Sure. And uh, and again, so so many lives cut so terribly terribly short. And you've and the the thing that's interesting about this crew is you've got what were considered old men and old hands that that mm-hmm. are that are here, which is, which is, which is really quite fascinating, but that's, I think that's something we probably all need to talk, try to talk about a bit more is it's, it's easy to compare plane to plane, but 
the human element, especially by this point where you've mm-hmm. got men of this experience going through an OTU ready to go into an operational squadron going up against literally boys on the other side and, and, and in the, in the flak regiments that they'd be, that they'd be facing. Sure. So let's change tack. Cause I want to hear about your grandfather a bit more. Okay. So well, he's, he, he, you said he got deployed. He ended up as company XO, but what, what happened to him? He's, he's had this sort of first realization of, of war with a, a burning bomber, but what happened to him when he deployed? So he uh, was actually on the continent about two weeks later. We have to stop. We oh. have been calling him your grandfather this whole time. Tell us his name, sir. He was Lieutenant Julius Carl Goldman. And he came in through 90th Replacement Battalion over uh, Utah Beach and joined up with the 83rd Infantry Division, uh, specifically 2nd Battalion, 330th Infantry Regiment on 24 July, 1944, right at the end of the Normandy campaign, just as they were about to jump off on Operation Cobra. And uh, he came in as a replacement officer leading 2nd Platoon because the 83rd, specifically 2nd Battalion, 330th, had been mauled in a pretty uh, intense battle just a week or two before. They lost, the 83rd lost a number of men on one of their, their first major combat actions. And so they, were, they needed to bring in uh, a number of replacement officers to, to lead their infantry platoons, and my granddad was one of them. So he came in, and he, he often said that he got there, and, and his uh, platoon sergeant came up to him and said, I'm glad you're here, Lieutenant, because I really didn't want to jump off on an attack without an officer here. So pretty much they went right into the, the Cobra breakout within a couple of days after that. And uh, he, he successfully led his platoon uh, pretty, pretty well with the outbreak uh, or breakout through, through Normandy and then on into Brittany, where they were, went through, let's see, oh, I can't think of the name of the town. But anyway, they got, went through Denard and then on to, uh, to Saint-Malo a couple weeks later. And of course, there was the fortress there at Saint-Malo, which was the, the major strong point that eventually the, uh, the division reduced. And they were there because they needed the port facility and uh, or the, the U.S. needed the port facility to start bringing in more, uh, you know, beans, bullets and, and uh, band-aids. And the problem was the Ile de Cézambre was right off the coast. And between Cézambre and the Channel Islands, the Germans had the approaches to the port completely hemmed in with artillery. So my granddad always talked about this because he said September 2nd was a, a lucky day for him. It happens to be my birth, my birthday, but September 2nd, 1944, at two o'clock in the afternoon, he was supposed to be in the lead landing craft, hitting the beach on Cezambra to retake the island. The morning of September 2nd, the island surrendered. And so 2nd Battalion, 330th occupied the island and... He was instrumental in, in negotiating the surrender. And the reason for that is because he spoke Yiddish. And so he was able to translate the Germans and, and communicate enough. And so he was able to, to negotiate the surrender of the 400 or so Germans, Italians, and Ukrainians on the island without firing a shot. And so he was actually awarded uh, his first Bronze Star there, which was, was pretty cool. And we can't really underestimate just how nasty a fight Saint Marlowe was. You know, oh, sure. It, we we don't. Yeah, you know, 
I think I only know about it because I had a fantastic dinner there once. Right. So you, you start learning about, of course, Lee Miller was there taking mm-hmm. photographs. Yep. Napalm was used. It, it's, it's, it's a fascinating, very, very bloody battle. And of course, you, I've just brought up Google Maps. That island is in the worst possible place, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It is. It is. I actually covered it a little bit in, in my book, which comes out what, in two weeks. We talked about last time. But, but yeah, I mean, they... they Quick, really give, it a, give it a plug. Oh, of course. So it's uh, P-47s versus uh, German light and medium flak from Osprey Publishing. It's for their- Get it dual, from their, all good and evil bookstores. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, the, the flak defenses there were, were pretty formidable. And as you mentioned, they used a lot, quite a bit of napalm on the island. In fact, there's, there's a, a really interesting shot of one of the, the artillery pieces there that's just completely melted from a direct hit by a napalm. So yeah, I mean- and actually, one of the really cool things I got from my granddad was the aerial reconnaissance photos of the island. Oh, and wow. so I have large format photos with his handwriting all over them, denoting machine gun emplacements and bunkers and, and all sorts of obstacles. And they really knew what, what to expect as they were coming in. Of course, he's sitting there, okay, uh, platoon leader from the lead platoon, he's the first guy off the landing craft. And of course, if you've seen, you know, the beginning of Saving Private Ryan, you know how that goes. So he he always sort of credited that that September 2nd was, like I said, was, was his good luck day because he didn't actually have to be the first guy off the, off the landing craft into the withering machine gun fire. I always find it remarkable that those platoon leaders, so many of them were killed, but at the same time, so many of them survived. It's, yeah. it's the hazardous of hazardous positions it's the the first guy over the parapet it's almost seen as 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 replaceable as as unfortunately that's what your grandfather came in for but what a fascinating little thing and amazing to have his his preparations for a battle that didn't need to happen because good sense seems to have prevailed not that there was a lot of that going on in saint marlo i'm just trying to remember the name of the german uh, garrison commander because he was von orloff yes Yes, Olak. Olak. He, he, he was a strange book, but we yeah. won't we won't talk about that. The Mad Colonel. <laughs> oh, what? Anyways, so so what happened next? Does, where 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 does he go? What what is what does he see? They go down through Brittany and then uh, Loire Valley and end up in uh, Luxembourg by September of forty four. There's a great photo of him and three of his sergeants sitting at a, at a, a table in the town of Stadbredemus. And he was very fond of pointing out that the next day a V1 hit that building. So uh, he said they were still there. And of course, he, he said it hit. And the first thing that out of his mouth was, where's my helmet? So he was, he was there and fortunately did, did okay. The Germans were right across the river from them. And, but it was still a relatively quiet sector. And, uh, and then they moved up to the Hurkin Forest and uh, saw quite a bit of action there. He, he was sort of, the 83rd in general, went, sort of went from, from hotspot to hotspot throughout the war. They were one of the most combat divisions and one you hear the least about. I think overall, as far as ca- U.S. Army division casualties, they were fifth overall. So really just a, a hell of a lot of combat experience from, from just after D-Day through the end of the war. And of course, right after they got hit pretty hard in, in, in the Hurkin, they get moved down to the bulge the day after Christmas. And uh, he said that the most intense combat he was in throughout the entire war was in the little town of Sterpigny, Belgium, or Sterpigny, as, as I, should, I should pronounce it properly. He always called it Sterpigny. But yeah, Sterpigny. I've been there 
three times now. And he said it was the largest tank battle that he ever witnessed because the uh, 2nd Battalion, 330th, was attached to the 3rd Armored Division at that point. And so they were working directly with, with Task Force Richardson, and uh, which was, I believe, part of Combat Command B of the 3rd Armored. I'd have to double-check that. But, but yeah, I mean, they were sort of the counterattack phase of the Bulge. A lot of people are, are aware, you know, the Bulge kicks off on December 16th. The Americans get pushed back hold the line, and then eventually, by oh, the first week of January, the, the campaign's over. Not true. The campaign actually continues on until uh, January 24th, when, when the lines are finally to, to where they were on December 15th. And most of the really you know, intense fighting is in mid-January. And the battle around Sturpigny and, and Gouvy and that and Langlier was really, like he said, the most intense combat he saw throughout the entire war. He lost um, two of his, his senior NCOs there, one just before that, and then one during the battle there in, in, in Stepigny. I actually was, was fortunate uh, to be able to, to visit their graves at Henri Chapelle when I was there uh, a couple of years ago. But, you know, they, it, it really was, uh, was incredible terrain. There was, I think they were, they were going against the 9th SS Panzer Division at that point, and they were just Panthers. I think there were five Panthers within this tiny little town and a number of other assault guns and stuff like that. So just amazing that they, they all, that he got out of there. I've seen some, some film footage of it and everything too during the, because there was actually a, a Signal Corps camera team there with them during the battle. So it was uh, kind of amazing to be able to see, see that with the, the, just the driving snow and everything. And then, of course, he took this, this great photo of Panther 412, which was knocked out right in front of the church there which I've been able to, to sort of recreate when I was standing exactly where he was the last time I was there and, and took a, a photo of the church, which was just, just pretty amazing to be able to do. So, yeah, I mean, and then in February of 45, he's promoted to Company XO and is basically running the company until the end of the war. And then leaving June, late June, early July, he gets up, he has enough points to go home he needed 85 to go home, home and he had 102 wow. um, for, for time on the line and, and awards and, and wounds and things like that. So he had 102 points. And so he transferred to the 99th Division and came home with the uh, 394th Infantry Regiment uh, and was back in New York by uh, December of 45. December 45. So that's literally 18, 18 months from entering combat to, to being yeah. home. That's, yep. that's some some turnaround but wow what a fantastic tale and in and in that footlocker that came home was a small part of hf 485 which is an an amazing story because i guess that would have that would have followed him followed him around the whole the whole time when his kit caught up with him yeah i mean it would have been in his duffel bag i would assume wherever they they uh you know, garrisoned after the war, it would have caught up with him. And it, it is pretty amazing that, that he was able to, to, you know, keep a hold of it uh, throughout the entire war. There's a nice sort of little bit of symmetry there that a, a little piece of, of those brothers, that crew was able to finish the job that they were hoping to, to be a part of as well. And I think that's, that's a really nice line that's through there. And it's great that you're, you're being able to tell us a story there and, and hopefully listening to this as someone out there who wants you to finish writing it all up. 
you know, fantastic. I mean, it's, it, you're, you're right. I mean, it, it's a piece of them made it to Germany and, you know, and they were there for the end of the war, which is pretty, pretty incredible. It would have been great if they were able to see it firsthand, but, but, you know, their, their memory lived on. And, and I, I firmly believe in, in things happen for a reason and, and was able to, to take this piece of aluminum that, that just most people wouldn't look twice at and, and give it faces and, and, and names and, and for lack of a better term, souls. I've got to thank you, John. That was, that was absolutely fascinating. And to, to learn about your grandfather as well, taking hedge hopping onto the ground for a change. That's, that, that's a new one. I'm, I'm sure there'll be complaints. Yeah. Twitter being, <laughs> Twitter being what it is. Well, I mean, I, I have to get in the, the, the plug for, you know, close air support there. Cause you know, one of the things that, that he really sort of always did talk about was, was getting P47 and P38 support and uh, always the morale factor and everything there. So uh, we, we talked about that fairly often, uh, especially when it became clear that, you know, that's what I was heading into the army to do. So, yeah, I mean, he, he loves close air support you know, more than anything about the army. Yeah. And yeah, just we can, let's geek out a little bit, especially that the, the push to get the line back to where it was on, on 15th of December, the, we can, praise the, the ninth there because they were constantly in the skies weren't they even in pretty pretty crappy weather they were they were still answering calls sure sure i mean that's you know that's one of those things where, where there's sort of been this acceptance of oh the the ninth air force wasn't flying until a couple of days after the, the battle started because the weather was terrible no they were absolutely up and flying in in ridiculously terrible weather fog and everything but they were doing you know incredible jobs uh, they may not have been right up on the front lines uh, providing close air support, but they were still hitting supply lines and, and trains and truck convoys and everything and stopping that material from hitting the, uh, from getting to the front lines where it was needed. Because yeah, it was the weather getting colder that actually led the second tactical to start flying as much as they did because they were waterlogged for most of October and November up north. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, I was just reading a, a, a thing to say as an aside, one, two, seven, the old, Canadian wing. Mm-hmm. There's a, a note in their their wing ORB that they'd requested Sunderland to operate from their base in uh, <laughs> in Belgium because they'd just been completely completely waterlogged. They hadn't been able to fly for about a week. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it, it, my granddad was up in in the hurricane there, and, and that's where he talked about trench foot and and just being completely soaked to the bone. So yeah, I mean, it, it that, that makes total sense. Seriously, this has been really, really good fun. So thank you so much, John. Let's get your book a plug because I I was thinking it was about now and it is now time for P47 versus Flag. So one more plug. We'll put it on the the bookshop so we can put it in the description for this. Excellent. Uh, yeah, it should be out on October 26th and uh, which is what, five days from now. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it'll be, it's, it's from Osprey Publishing in their dual series and look at sort of how American tactical air power matched up against uh, German light and medium flak. And it was a fascinating study, especially when I was writing it. I was the director of the Air Defense Artillery Museum. So I had a uh, flak beerling 38 and, and uh, a three centimeter Jabeshrik and a couple of the uh, actual guns there uh, at my disposal. So that was, uh, that was really kind to, to be able to do that. 
Yes, go go back in John's Twitter feed, folks, because he he has a lot of very cool toys, even in even in his even in his new role with the Marines. But we won't talk about them. <laughs> Super, John. Thank you so much. This has been fantastic, and I know it was a bit short notice to jump in, but it's been it's been fantastic. Thank you so much for ha- spending the time with us. Always happy to be here, man. Uh, looking forward to to doing it again. Thank you. So take care. I'm delighted to say that P-47 Thunderbolt versus German Flak Defences, Western Europe, 1943 through 1945, by Jonathan Bernstein, which is published by Osprey Publishing, is available now. If you check the description in this episode, you'll find a link to our very own bookshop where you can buy John's book, but also all the great books from our recent guests as well. The bookshop can be found at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack where 10% of every one of your purchases comes to supporting the podcast thank you so much for your support and thank you for listening hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.